any organization that you know of, whether it's a family or a multinational corporation, they are always, um, there's always in that organization those who are responsible, most responsible for the good and the welfare of that organization. And when it comes to the church, we always are asking ourselves the question, what is the requirements of those who are set apart to be most responsible for the good and welfare of the church? It is not a coincidence, it is certainly according to plan, that we're going to look today at the next to last passage in Peter's letter to those fledgling churches of the first century and what was then or what is now Turkey. And Peter is going to speak this morning with certain urgings and encouragements for elders. And the reason that we've chosen today as a special day is because um, today, as you heard from the primer earlier on nomination, we're this day inaugurating a season for nomination for who is going to be an elder, who will be a deacon, who will be a deaconess in our midst. And that's a serious choice on the part of members who make those nominations. And that's why we want to take some time to press into what does Peter mean by those he calls shepherds? Because who they are, their calling, their character, and whatever else we might think of them is essential for us to know to make wise choices, but also to know how to relate to them. Now, he's speaking to elders, to, to, to shepherds who would come and care for that flock. And the question is, well, how does that relate to everybody else? How does his exhortation, his urging, his encouragements to elders apply to all of you, whether you become an elder or not? I think it's going to help us in this sense. We're going to consider, what do we learn about being a member of a body from what we learn about those who are entrusted to its greatest care? What is this strange post of responsibility that they're called to and for which they are equipped and then entrusted with responsibility? What is it? And then what do we learn about us as a consequence of learning about them? So we're going to look at that question from three angles. Um, one, what do we need from elders? Two, what do we look for in elders? And then third, what do we share in common with elders? Now, what I could say of elders is equally true of those who are deacons or deaconesses. There's a, a differences in set of responsibilities for both of those. But essentially, what do we need from them? What do we look for in them? And what do we share in common with them? That's where we're going. So let's listen to, to these five verses from 1 Peter chapter 5. Our central text for today can be found in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. All right. What does a body of believers who are known as sheep need 
from those who are called elders. Now, God forbid I ever wake up in an emergency room and not know why I'm there if I should see Joe DeMent scrubbing in then I could probably deduce that something has happened to one of my bones. If I see Greg Stashenko scrubbing in, then it's a pretty good bet that I'm having problems breathing. If I see Dr. Peggy Morris scrubbing in, then I will have to conclude that I've been asleep for 40 years, and now I am under her elder geriatric care, at which point I will wonder how come she didn't age. But in each of those circumstances, I can deduce from the specialist that is sent to me what is my need? And Peter, in these five verses, is going to get down into the weeds about what is the calling of an elder. And when we sense what that calling is, we'll come to understand what is it that we need from someone thusly specialized to that end. And Peter gets right to the point when he, when he, he speaks not as one who looks down upon those who are other elders. He speaks as one who is a fellow elder himself. He identifies with them. And in doing so, he describes himself. And in describing himself, he gets us to what is true of anybody that would ever be a shepherd. What is true of the heart of anybody that would be entrusted with that responsibility. And so he says in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. There's two things there in describing himself and his experience that helps us understand what is, what is true of the heart of any shepherd. And the first thing is that their heart has been captivated by what Christ has done for them. For Peter to speak of himself as one who is a witness to the sufferings of Christ, he is therefore saying that he is implying that he has been captivated by what this one who called himself Jesus had done on his behalf. Before we ever talk about what an, ever an elder does, before Peter says a single thing about what an elder does, the first thing that we always have to grasp is that an elder is captivated by what Christ has sacrificed on behalf of those whom he calls his sheep. But not only captivated by what he has suffered, a shepherd is also captivated by the hope of a future glory. That that day is coming when, to borrow Tolkien's word, everything is sad is going to come untrue. And an elder, in that sense, is not a life coach. An elder, a shepherd, is, is not one um, that to help you get your best life now. And, and though they may long and, and be desperate to see your circumstances change, their hope is not mainly or even primarily on a change of the outcome of your near term. Uh, their greatest hope is set upon an even greater outcome, whether or not your circumstances ever change. Their heart is set upon what is still to come. And therefore, the calling of a shepherd is to have a heart that is captivated both by their great need of an even greater love and their great hope that that love will even prevail and even beyond death. And in that heart, it exerts itself in particular ways for a particular purpose. And that calling you hear put pretty succinctly there in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's it. 
That's all he says. And you think, like, could we have a little more, Peter? What, what do you mean? If, if, this, if this responsibility is so high and the calling is um, so um, remarkable, then could you give us a little bit more? But look, in that day, in a, in a primarily a, an agrarian society, a pre-industrial, pre-technological, pre-modern society, you use the word shepherd, and everybody knows what you're talking about. It's not so hard to look at what sheep need in order to figure out what do shepherds do. But surely, in the background of what Peter has in mind when he tells these who would be responsible for the church what it means to be a shepherd, surely in the back of his mind is what the prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 34. If you know the context of that passage, it is God speaking through Ezekiel to Israel with great horror at the way in which the shepherds of his people Israel had abdicated their responsibility. And so he speaks in chapter 34, he says this, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who've been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak, you have not strengthened. The sick, you have not healed. The injured, you've not bound up. The strayed, you've not brought back. The lost, you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you've ruled them. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. Look, uh, we can make this massive shift in, in culture from uh, an exclusively agrarian setting to a modern industrial technological setting, and you can still pick up just from that text about what shepherds do to figure out what is the calling of a shepherd of those who are sheep of his church. They're out to feed. They're out to protect. They're out to bind up. They're out to gather back. It's what shepherds do. And if you've ever watched a shepherd do his thing, then you know quite well how dedicated they are and how dedicated they must be in order to fulfill that responsibility. You don't have to have a degree in animal husbandry to put two and two together about what is the calling of a shepherd. And that's why God says several verses later in the same chapter what he's going to do even though the shepherds of Israel abdicated their responsibility. He says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. That's what a shepherd does. To care. To protect. To get involved. And sometimes to discern who's right and who's wrong in a given altercation. That's what shepherds do. When Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 20, realizes that he's got to go to Jerusalem and that he knows in, through a vision that he's going to face suffering, he calls the elders together from Miletus, which is on the, the western coast of what is now Turkey, and, and says to them straight up, I think this is the last time I'm ever going to see you. But he says... Some rather poignant words that get to the heart of what a shepherd is out to do. He's, he said, I've, shared, I've, I've, I've spared nothing from telling you what I was supposed to tell you. I've, I've kept nothing back and I, I made sure I was never a burden unto you. And I've, I've made promises to you that the Lord will keep. And then he says in Acts chapter 20, Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. He speaks with all poignancy the nature of what it means to be a shepherd. Now, look, if you've been around Grace Mills River for any length of time, and, and you've seen the more visible aspects of what our elders do, you realize that what they're up to most of the time is to make sure that things are smoothly operating and that we are being good stewards of all the resources that you give us as a body and that the, the elders are out to both formulate and to explain the nature of our priorities and our vision. That's what they do, and those things are visible. But to hear what Ezekiel says and to hear what Paul says, you realize that at the heart of a shepherd's role, a shepherd's life, is to exercise great care for that which is precious in God's sight and that which was bought at a price. It's the nature of the calling. It's central to their responsibility. It is the essence of this strange post to care about you and to sacrifice for you. If that's their calling, what do we learn about ourselves? What do, we, what do we gather about what we need from a shepherd based upon the calling of a shepherd? And I think, if you just think about it long enough, I've got at least four things that I think we learn about what we need from shepherds from the nature of that calling. The first is this. We, we need the faith made plain to us. We need an explanation, both in word and in deed, what it means to follow. Because this belief in Jesus is a belief that is lived out. Any theology that you might know, doctrine is something that is lived. Theology is always a lived theology. And therefore, if God has picked and set apart a certain few to be shepherds of that community, it, that, that must mean that we, to borrow a phrase that you've probably heard before, we need Jesus with skin on. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit whom we cannot see, who is invisible and yet real, and yet we also need those who embody the truth of the triune God and who give us that sense of what faith is through what they say and through what they do, and most especially through what it means to repent. You've probably heard it said around Grace Mills River any number of times that the best thing that elders do is repent, that they're the chief repenters. They acknowledge where they are wrong, they grieve what they have done, and they reach for the grace that is always available to them and that is inexhaustible to them through what Christ has done. And in that, they are the model of what it means to walk in Him. We need someone to make faith plain to us first. Secondly, we need somebody to protect us from error and to protect us from harm. We need someone to be, uh, metaphorically speaking, to scan the horizon of what's coming. And to alert us to what's coming and to prepare us for what's coming and, and, and to stand in the way of that if something is coming our way that we don't really bargain for or, or can understand. They have to protect us from air. They have to protect us from danger. But they also, from time to time, have to come after us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's more than a lyric. That's the experience of every believer. And if not, especially in this season, where our hearts are prone to grow hard and cynical, 
to anything that's good. We need someone to come and speak truth unto us to keep our hearts supple. And we need them to have the courage to come to us, which, which gives me one more thing that I think tells us what we need from elders. And, it, and, I, and I take it from, from something that is true of every single episode of Scooby-Doo. I know you're, you're bracing for the real profound truth still to come here, but what happens at the end of every episode of Scooby-Doo, right? They, the, the foursome, they always thwart the plans of the ones that were out to do some sort of shenanigans. And every single time that they uncover the true identity of the one who did what they were doing, that, that person always says, if it wasn't for these meddling kids, I would have been able to fill in the blank. They meddled. They meddled in what was not their business and what was actually their business to be sure of. Friends, in this life, given our heart and the nature of this faith, we sometimes need somebody to meddle in our business. To have, as I've put it to you before, a kind of holy nosiness. To get involved and to intervene where it's necessary. Not looking down on you with a self-righteous air, but like someone who sees somebody else dancing a little too close to the edge of a precipice and having both the heart and the words to say, Stop. It's what we need from shepherds based on what it means to be a shepherd. That's what we reduce from it. The, the, perhaps a, the best metaphor I've heard of late about what a shepherd is or what an elder is, an elder is a bridesmaid. What do bridesmaids do? They are always paying the most attention to the bride. They're making sure that she will... Um, uh, look lovely and splendid. Everything's put together. Uh, they will help her navigate every place that she needs to go uh, to make sure uh, she finds what she needs to do. But most assuredly, what they're most interested in is that she would be radiant and full of what it means to be a bride. And surely I am borrowing both that idea from another pastor, but he's borrowing that idea from what Paul says to the church at Ephesus about who is the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And though Jesus is the, the prime one, the one most responsible for presenting that bride unto God as a splendid belief, a splendid bride, he entrusts to others that same work. That's what an elder does. He's a bridesmaid. That's the nature of their calling. That's what we need from them. But what do we need to look for in those who might be elders? And, and for that matter, who might be deacons or deaconesses? I want to share with you a, a lighthearted but a dramatic way of thinking through what do we look for? What are we looking for in those who would be entrusted with that responsibility? So what do you think about all this? Elder nominations? Yeah, who are you leaning towards? I don't know. I hate elections and politics, especially in the church. Yeah, but better for a group of guys to come together over issues than, than have one person run like a dictatorship. Yeah, we're all sinners, and now it's a bunch of them working together. That feels like a mess no matter who gets in. Probably should just flip a coin or, I don't know, shake things up and go independent. Independent? Yeah, get you to nominate me and run my campaign. Eh, I think you'd be better off flipping the coin. Oh, come on. I can do this church board thing. You mean session? Whatever. No, I could do this. We could do this. Yeah, right. Ah, oh, man, you, me, 
dynamic duo. We could we could tag team this thing and have it running like a well-oiled machine in no time. I think they're doing the best job they can, man. Okay, fine, but it, it could always be better. It's probably harder than it looks. I mean, besides, I don't even know if we'd qualify. Oh, we'll get in. Everyone likes us and knows what we bring to the table, so. Yeah, but this isn't a popularity contest. I mean, look, even beyond the qualifications, there's promises, commitments, monthly meetings. Man, I hear those things go on for hours. Not with the right people in the room. Besides, it's a small price to pay to finally have a say on some of the things around here. You're actually serious. Only if you are. Come on, it'll be fun, man. Let's, where do we start? Okay, let's see, uh, character traits. Um, well, first, we're shepherds. No problem. Herd the flock, right? Keep them in line. Sometimes the carrot, sometimes the stick. Oh, like good cop, bad cop. Exactly. Okay. Uh, servant leaders. See? Now, even the list needs changed. Which is it? Do you serve or lead? You can't have it both ways. Give me that thing. Not domineering or selfish. Yeah, it'd be tough for you. I always have to have my way. I just, I just want to do what's right. Yeah, for you. Can I help it if I'm usually right? Oh, look. Humility. Fine. <laughs> All right, just not a doormat or they'll run us over. Oh. Bridesmaids. Huh? What does that mean? I don't know, probably a typo. Yeah. Uh, sacrificial love. Okay, take a few for the team. Uh, as modeled for us. Meaning? Uh, to lay down our lives like the great shepherd. Okay, sure, but who's in charge? Us or them? Mm, no, this isn't about power. It's about love and care. Striving for what's good and true for the flock, even through questions and criticism. Okay, that's impossible. Oh, what would get to be chiefs? Great. Now Chief we're repenters. So we get to lead. And yeah, lead in repenting, right? All right, forget the coin. No one fits the bill. That's probably a better place to start. See where it ends is exactly where anybody that would be considered for that role needs to, needs to land. It's the heart that they need to reflect. The Apostle Paul says on two occasions in one of his letters to the church at Corinth that no one is sufficient for these things. No one is in and of themselves qualified to do the work to which they've been called. And that's why not only are they entrusted with responsibility, but they're equipped to do so and sustained by truth and by hope and by his spirit. And that's why you have to have that kind of humility. That's why you have to kind of be awakened to that need of recognizing the task is larger than I'm capable of. And that's what the sketch offered you, offers us all. And, and Peter underscores that, that, that need for humility in drawing three kinds of contrasts to help us flesh out not only the calling of a shepherd, but the character that undergirds the successful and faithful fulfillment of that calling. Three contrasts, one of which is this. Those who would be called under this role do not do so in a begrudging way, but are utterly willing to do so. It is not about being put up to doing something. It is not out to impressing somebody else or impressing oneself. It is something that they want to do. Paul elsewhere in his instructions about elders in 1 Timothy 3 says, anybody who longs to be an overseer, who longs to be a shepherd, desires a good thing. It's a good desire. Such that if that desire is not in place, then the calling is not present. If that is not something that, that there is enthusiasm for, then it's probably not the right time for something like that because there will be days 
when you will not want to shepherd the sheep. There will be days when you will be tempted to adapt the famous line from Henny Youngman, Jesus I love, it's his bride I can't stand. Those who would reflect what comports with the calling and fulfilling it have to do so not in a begrudging way, but a, but a willing way. And that leads us to a second contrast that Peter makes that gets us to the character of this one who is called. They're not in it for them. They're in it for those who serve. You heard him say in verse 3, Willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Apparently, uh, there was a day in which uh, those who were shepherds would be compensated for their labor in some ways, in which point all of the elders who are now listening to this service are thinking to themselves, wait a minute, I could have been paid? I'm in the wrong church. Whatever the case may have been, whatever compensation they might have been given, in that day, Peter was warning them, if you're in this for yourself, you're in it with the wrong heart. You have to be in it most, most for those that you would serve. And that's why to embody this kind of character is to not have to need whatever title that comes with the office or the roles of which we speak, but it is to long to do it, to be glad to do it, even if you're never even chosen to do it. And that gets us to the third mark of character that, that Peter flushes out for us through a contrast that he makes. This is a mark of character that he puts there in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. They're not in this for them. They're in this to be an example. You may remember the text that we referred to in previous weeks about what it meant to be subject to other authorities, and especially what it meant to lead, and even to what it means to be a husband. And we referred to something that Jesus tells the disciples when they begin to sort of kick and scratch and long for prominence in his company. And he says to them in Mark chapter 10, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. To have this post is to have a post of authority. But to have that post of authority is to see yourself as the centurion tells Jesus when he realizes who Jesus is. And he says unto Jesus, I, I know who you are. I too am a man under authority. To have this post of responsibility is to see yourself as one who is himself under authority. It's a necessary remark, a reflection of character. Because in that role, there are temptations, both for those who have that authority and those who might be in submission to that authority. For those who have the authority, the temptation might be to say, I'm in charge here, you need to listen to me. And for those who are called to submit under their authority, they might be the ones who say, no one tells me what to do, and they would defy that. But this character to which we're called is one in which no one ever thinks of their authority as an opportunity to serve themselves, but to serve those that are in their care. That's the character that fulfills the calling. And Peter has spoken to both of those issues in these just few verses. But he doesn't end what he has to say to elders and therefore what he has to say to anybody that would be part of a church without making sure that those who have that authority always have their feet 
firmly planted on the ground. The last thing I want to talk about with you is not just what is the calling and character of an elder, not just what we need from them and what to look for in them, but what we all share in common with them. And what we share in common with them is three things. We share in common with them a common cause with a distinct station. When he says in verse 4, or rather in verse 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. The idea there of being an elder is not in name only. There is a real authority there. There is a kind of submission that occurs to them. And yet, they both have a common cause. They're both called to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're both called to love their neighbor as their self. They're both to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're both called to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. Even though there's a difference in responsibility and a difference in authority, they have that same common cause. And that common cause is found in a common attitude. An attitude that boils down to something like humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, he says in verse 5, with humility toward one another. The temptations to let your authority go to your head or the temptation to think that nobody can tell you what to do will always run rampant in any organization. And yet when we know who we are to one another, we realize we must humble ourselves to one another. What does Paul say when, when uh, those to whom he is speaking there think that he's another god or an angel or a messenger straight from divinity? He says, stop bowing down to me. Get up. Get up. I'm just like a man. I'm just a man just like you. I just have a message to share with you. He is clothing himself with the humility that we all share, whether you are an elder, a shepherd, or not. And that common attitude rests on a third thing that we all share in common, and that is a common aspiration. What do elders all aspire to that everyone aspires to? And that is the commendation of the Lord. When he says in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He's talking about a commendation an affirmation, not for anything that they've done, but entirely based upon the one in whose name they've come and in whose name they serve. And what is true of those who are shepherds is true of everyone who looks to Jesus as their chief shepherd. Because what does it say in James chapter 1? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive what? The crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That crown of glory, that crown of life, it all comes from the same hand. And therefore, that is what both elders and those who submit to them share in common. Because, as we said at the early part of this sermon, there's one more reason why Ezekiel is in the background of Peter's thought. Because when God says to Israel through Ezekiel what he will do on behalf of Israel, he says this in verse 22. I'll rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Who is this one shepherd? How can it be David? David has been dead for centuries. Who is this one shepherd? 
This one shepherd is the chief shepherd, the great shepherd. It is David's greater son. The one who is willing to lay down his life for his friends and for his enemies. Not like a hired hand who runs and scatters when the thief might come. But ones who stands to protect, to defend, and if necessary, to sacrifice greatly on behalf of the welfare of the sheep. That is the attitude and the aspiration, or rather that is the basis for this attitude and this aspiration, that we might fulfill this task under that end. Okay, what's the takeaway? What do you do with all that? Even knowing what you need from them, what to look for in them, and what you share in common with them. What's the takeaway? It's really simple. He says you're to be subject unto your shepherds. And by that, he does not mean worship and bow down to them. By that, he does not mean you wait for them to say jump and you say how high. When he's talking about being subject, he's actually about giving them permission to shepherd you. Giving them permission to ask of you, not just the pleasantries or how things are going, but, but to go into the deeper world, the deeper terrain, to ask you, how is your soul? What most preoccupies you these days? To ask you, what's hard about being a disciple right now, and, and how could I be of help to you? To be subject unto them is to, to give them the freedom and the permission to ask those questions and, and to be willing to answer them because you know that they have your welfare most at heart. To be subject to them is to give them permission to let them offer you counsel, to offer you encouragement. It is to give them permission that sometimes when it's necessary to chasten you in love, if they sense that what you're doing is on a pathway to a dark place. It is to give them permission to pray for you and to let them do it often. It's to be subject to them. It's to pray for them. If they are just like you, in need of the same redemption that you do, in need of the same renewal and encouragement than you do, then it's happening. It would be proper for you to pray for them as a takeaway to understanding their nature and their calling. But lastly, if you will, pray well, think well, and ask yourself, who in our midst is already eldering? Who is already deaconing? Who is already demonstrating both a sense of that calling that's intuitive to them and reflects the character that they don't have to be reminded of all the time, but that is just true for them? Who's already doing that? Who, who reflects the insight that you're seeking? Who, who demonstrates the kind of heart that, that you would want them at your bedside? Who is the kind of person to whom you could share your deepest struggles and not be fearful of them condemning you or looking down on you with self-righteousness, but because they're humble enough to know themselves that all they would wish to do is be of encouragement to you? Who are those people now? I'd encourage you to think about them and nominate them if you're a member of our body. This is the calling. This is the character. This is what we all share in common with those who are elders. This is what you need from them, what to look for in them, what you share in common with them. And Lord willing, he will continue to bless his church with health and with vitality and with new possibility through their leadership, a leadership that is ultimately of service. I'm going to pray and then I want to end my prayer by reciting the 23rd Psalm. And if you happen to know it, I encourage you to say it along with me. So let's pray.
Father, I give you thanks that you have given us your church, that you have come for us and showed us or showed yourself to us as one who blesses and protects and cares and feeds and chastens all for our good. And I would pray that you would bless those who are already in posts of responsibility, our elders, our deacons, our deaconesses. And I pray that you would help us to think well about who might add to those ranks and serve this church and help us to know what you have for us in the days and months ahead. And so we praise you and we give you thanks that, that you are our shepherd. Join me in this prayer found in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.